that his name be hallowed, that his kingdom would come, that his will would be done. And so we're going to pray that those things would be first and foremost on our minds, that we would seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Let's do that now. Let's pray together. Most merciful God, we thank you for the gift of prayer. We thank you that as the blood of Jesus gives us confidence to enter your throne room, that you actually want to listen. That we don't have to get your attention by heaping up words and phrases. We don't have to gain your favor by punishing ourselves or by sounding pious. But that Jesus, even here, Jesus has done all that we need to do. So God, we pray that you would hallow your name. Bring glory to your name. May it be holy to us, your people. Hallow your name in our hearts. May it be what we care about. May you be what we care about. We pray that your kingdom would come. Not all around the world, as your good news, as your light pushes into the darkness, we pray for um, laborers into the harvest field. We pray, Lord, for those who would speed the light, who would carry your the good news of your Son Jesus to the rest of the world. We thank you, God, for the growth of your church around the world. That even as the church declines in the West, what are commonly known as the Christian nations, that she is exploding in places like Africa and Asia. Even still, Lord, we pray for revival. We pray for revival in our own land. We pray for revival in countries like Chile, where the formal church has long had a hold, and yet where many practice folk religion and call it Christianity. God, we pray for a revival of your church in Chile. Lord, we also pray for Chad, the country in Africa, where Much of the country is gripped in poverty, where many people uh, still worship, again, folk, folk religion, old traditional tribal religions, where many people are trapped in religions of no hope, where they're having to offer sacrifices to cruel uh, spiritual forces. God, we pray for liberation. We pray that more and more would hear the good news of Jesus, who has come to do away with spiritual darkness. Would you break the hold of darkness in Chad? Father, would you break the hold of darkness on the hearts of many in our midst? Father, far-off countries are not the only places where we can worship after our own fashion and call it Christianity. Where we can call ourselves Christian but not actually know Jesus. Lord, I pray that this would be a place where the good news of Jesus is constantly proclaimed and believed. 
Lord, we also thank you that you provide us our daily bread, that you are a God who cares for our needs, that you meet us in our moments of need. Lord, I lift up Mark McKinnon to you now in the hospital with pancreatitis, God, and pray for his recovery, pray for healing to his body. Father, for the other uh, other struggles going on with illness, God, I pray for your healing touch there. Lord, for those who are lonely, for those who are angry, for those who are anxious, would you meet your people in our distress? Would you be our rock and our refuge? And now, Lord God, as we turn to listen to your word, we ask that the words of our mouths, the words of my mouth, and the meditation of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. We ask it in the matchless name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. I just realized that I left my notes in the chair. You want me to use those. Boom. You know that. Thanks. Okay, so we have been, uh, we have started a series in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, and the reason that we are going through Luke's Gospel is really quite simple. We want to get to know Jesus. Um, as I mentioned in my prayer, oftentimes we have a danger of kind of worshiping after our own fashion, believing vague spiritual things about God or saying, well, I'm sure that's in the Bible somewhere. Uh, but Christianity is actually about one person, a real person, a historical person whose name is Jesus. And so we're going through the gospel of Luke that we can get acquainted with Jesus. Uh, and today we will be in Luke chapter 2. And we will actually meet Jesus for the first time. Everything up to this point has all been getting us ready for the birth of Jesus. And as I read... I, I know this is going to be a familiar passage to many of you, um, and all I would ask is that you look at it with fresh eyes this morning. Uh, and in order to help us do that, there are going to be some words, Now I'm going to stay true to the original, uh, but there are going to be some words that I'm going to change, uh, because I don't think they're as jarring to us. Words like manger don't mean a whole lot to us, but feed trough sure does, all right? So, I just want you to know that as I do that, I'm not monkeying with Scripture, uh, but I'm going back to the original Greek uh, and using the word that fits where we are. Okay, and, I, and again, I'm doing that so that we hear this familiar passage. If you're familiar with the Bible, uh, you've been around the church at Christmas time, odds are you've heard uh, this read before, uh, but I want us to uh, hear it with fresh eyes, as it were. So, let's give attention to God's Word. Luke chapter 2, verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, 
And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger in a food trough because there was no place for them in the inn. And in that same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock at night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Don't be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For to you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a feed trough. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude, a vast heavenly army, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, Peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in the feed trough. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it marveled at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had seen and heard as it has been told, as it had been told them. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. May he help us to understand it and may it change our hearts for his glory and our good. Amen. The uh, the plot twist is something of a, of a norm now in movies. Uh, we all kind of look for and love the the plot twist. Some are good, some not so good. Uh, one of my favorite plot twist movies is Ocean's Eleven, the uh, the 2001 version. I haven't ever seen the 1960 version, but I'm sure it's good. Um, but if you're not familiar with Ocean's Eleven, it's the story of Danny Ocean. He's an ex-con, and he recruits a team of thieves. Uh, this is a bank heist movie, or rather, I guess you could say a casino heist movie. He recruits uh, this the- this uh, this group of talented thieves to rob the vault at the Bellagio Casino in Las Vegas. Uh, it also doesn't help that uh, the guy he's going to rob is currently dating his ex-wife, whom he wants to win back. So, uh, so Ocean compiles this team of thieves to crack the security uh, at the Bellagio vault on a huge night where there's a big fight in town and lots of distractions. All right? Uh, and most of the movie is these guys putting their their plan uh, together, right? They, they hatch this elaborate plan uh, by which they're going to crack into this vault, which is tightly secured, 
Uh, and then at several points in the story, as, as we begin to go through the heist, there are several points in the story where you think, that's it, it's lost, right? If this gadget doesn't work the right way, or if this person doesn't show up at the right time, the whole thing is lost. One part of the plan hinges on another, and if, and if any one part of it fails, the whole thing is over. They're discovered and they lose. Which of course, I won't ruin the whole movie for you, but, it has been out since 2001. It's, you can go rent it. Um, basically, as you get to the end of the movie, it all comes together. Everything goes according to plan. Ocean, they get the money, and he gets the girl. Right? Uh, only in Hollywood do you get the money, and do you get the girl. Um, so, in a similar fashion, right, this story, this one that we're really familiar with, is actually full of plot twists and turns. See, we've, we've read this enough that the shock and awe of the people who would first read it uh, has worn off on us. We're not really surprised by it anymore. But there are actually three twists that I hope will kind of capture the theme of this passage for us. First, we're going we're gonna to take the turn from capital to countryside. Uh, second, we're going to go from fear to peace. And third, we're going to go from Caesar to Savior. And all of them to kind of demonstrate this central theme that Jesus' humility, Jesus' humility brings glory to God and salvation to his people. Now, before we do this, I want you to think for a second, when was the last time you considered humility a good thing? Uh, it really, even before the Christian story made its mark on world history, humility was not a value. Humility was not something that people uh, strived for. In fact, it was something to be avoided. You didn't want to go lower, you wanted to be exalted. We don't like to be humbled, we like to be lifted up. Uh, think about the heroes, even, that would have been prominent in Jesus' day, particularly in Greek culture. Hercules, right? The heroes, even though Hercules would be a, a mix of man and God, which Jesus, by the way, is not. He's fully God and fully man. But Hercules has superhuman strength. And he uses that superhuman strength uh, to fight and to win challenges. That's the kind of hero that we're normally looking for. But that's not the kind of hero that Jesus is at all. Jesus goes the other direction. Jesus takes the place of humility. And it's in humility that he goes to greatness. Uh, and we're going to see that, that it begins right here uh, in this story. That Jesus' humility is what brings glory to God and salvation to his people. Let's look at our first turn from capital to countryside. Uh, Luke situates us in history, and we want to remember that, that this is a historical account. Luke considers himself a historian, and he shows us right where we are in history. Uh, Caesar Augustus, the ruler of the known world, the Roman Empire, has declared a registration, has declared a census, uh, and probably for the purpose of taxation, right? We, we get that. It's tax time. You have just uh, another week or so to get yours in. 
Um, thankfully, we get to mail our taxes in. We don't all have to go back to our hometowns to register there and be taxed. But that's what Joseph and Mary have to do. This is some 90-mile trip between uh, Nazareth and Judea, uh, between Nazareth and Bethlehem, and uh, with a pregnant wife late in her pregnancy, they're having to make this 90-mile trek. And so, but when Caesar wants a census, Caesar gets a census. Apparently, Caesar Augustus was known for being a good administrator. History tells us that he actually kept the totals of these registrations by hand. Uh, And so, Mary and Joseph are required to go back to their ancestral home place, Bethlehem, because Joseph is from the line of King David, and, and David was from Bethlehem. Now, David has already been mentioned twice in chapter 1. He is mentioned three more times just in this passage. Why is David so important? Why is it necessary that that Jesus be born in Bethlehem? Now, if you don't know uh, your Bible's history, that's okay. Uh, David was considered the greatest king in Israel's history. Uh, Even though he sinned in some very major ways, ways, every king after David was to be patterned by David, right? Everybody looked back to David. His rule was seen as the high point. Every king was compared to David because David followed the Lord. Even in his sin, even when he sinned, David repented. So he was a man who walked with the Lord. Now, after David, as the kings get worse and the kingdom of Israel begins to collapse, the prophets start talking about a future David, a David who was to come. And one of those prophets, a man named Micah, says this in Micah chapter 5, verse 2. He says, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. So Micah, one of these prophets looking forward to a future king, says that that king will come out of Bethlehem, this little insignificant town in the hill country of Judea. In fact, we don't have any evidence that David ever went back to Bethlehem. Once David made his home in Jerusalem, that was really David's city. But here, this little tiny town in the hill country that had no other claim to fame, this is where this ruler would come from, Micah tells us. And so it's pretty cool that God moves the entire Roman Empire. God works in the heart of Caesar Augustus to move the entire Roman machinery so some no-name couple will travel to Bethlehem, this no-name town, and have a baby named Jesus. The first shocking thing about this whole story is that God uses some far-off king, some, some king far away in Rome, to make his purposes come to pass. Proverbs 21.1 says that the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. So maybe you feel uh, that the world is just a little bit too big. 
right? That, that things are just a little bit too out of control, right? And in fact, news channels uh, trade on this reality, right? That they, they make money by causing fear in our hearts over the fact that, that the world is out of control. The sky is falling. Uh, it's going crazy. We need to remember that the heart of the king is a stream in the hands of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wants. That God is capable of moving Caesar Augustus to decree a census so that Mary and Joseph will go to Bethlehem so that their son Jesus will be born there to keep an old promise. That uh, That is the beauty. So, so even uh, in our day when we want to be afraid of big tech or big government, or some other vast, you know, left-wing conspiracy, or right-wing conspiracy, right? I'm not saying those things aren't there or don't exist, that there aren't hidden hands moving in behind the scenes, but behind those hidden hands is another hand, and his hand cannot be stopped, his purpose cannot be thwarted, and he brings his purpose to bear, not in Rome, but in Bethlehem, not in the capital, but in the countryside, but it gets even better. Uh, we need to, to demystify the Christmas story just a little bit. Uh, we've, we've surrounded it with so much song, which is not all bad. But we've also surrounded it with a lot of sweetness, which is bad. Because when we do that, we kind of miss the, the gritty reality of Jesus' birth. Which is why I love Andrew Peterson's song, Labor of Love. Peterson writes this, It was not a silent night. There was blood on the ground. You could hear a woman cry in the alleyways that night on the streets of David's town. And the stable was not clean. And the cobblestones were cold. And little Mary, full of grace, with the tears upon her face, had no mother's hand to hold. That's the reality of Bethlehem, right? Verses 6 and 7 are, are really quite stark in their simplicity. It's amazing that more isn't said. But it simply says, while they were there, there in Bethlehem, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a feed trough. Because there was no place for them in the inn. Now, over the years, we've taken some poetic license, right? We see Joseph haggling with mean innkeepers who won't give a, give a room to this poor pregnant lady. We don't get all that in the Bible story. We don't know why there was no room in the inn. And maybe what's even more remarkable is that if God wanted there to be room in the inn, there would have been room in the inn. But he wants his son laid in a feed trough. He wants his son born in the dirt of a stable or a cave or a lean-to, whatever it was, wherever they kept the animals, wherever you would find a feed trough. That is where the Lord Jesus enters the world. And so the question we need to ask is that of all the ways that God could seek and save the lost, why did He choose this one? Why did God go this route? 
when he could have gone a million others. Hold on to that as we keep going. Let's go from fear to peace. Uh, nearby, in the hills nearby, probably, there were some shepherds, and they were, they were taking turns watching their sheep. It's in the middle of the night, or at least very dark. Uh, and you need to know that shepherds were a, a despised class. They really weren't uh, considered all that reputable. Part of that was because their work kept them from keeping uh, the ceremonial laws, or at least the way that they were traditionally observed. Uh, so they were outsiders. Uh, Jewish courts did not consider them to be reliable witnesses. And so then it's absolutely fitting uh, on this theme of, of God turning things upside down that he would choose this despised group of people who were not worth, uh, who were not considered good witnesses. He would make them witnesses. They would be the ones who get to meet Jesus first. And so there they are keeping their sheep um, and not expecting much to happen. The sheep are probably asleep. Uh, and then out of nowhere, an angel appears, this messenger from heaven. And the shepherds are absolutely terrified. It, it says that they literally feared a great fear. This is the third angel appearance in Luke. And each time, the reaction has been the same. Absolute terror. Why? Well, think about it this way. What happens uh, when you're confronted by a great person? Uh, somebody who's important or powerful uh, or someone that uh, maybe you really look up to, right? When you're confronted, when, when we're confronted with uh, someone that we admire or somebody with a whole lot of power, our own inadequacies begin to become very apparent to us, right? You may become really apologetic, like, oh, I'm so sorry, uh, you know, I'm not dressed appropriately or, or whatever it is, or, or maybe you just become really silent. You start shutting down, right? Um, how about when you meet a really good person? Uh, someone, when you're present with somebody that you know, it's just, it's just a good person. Well, it's interesting that um, I don't have these opportunities a whole, whole lot. Um, it's part of the reason kind of why I avoid telling people that I'm a pastor um, because it has a funny way of kind of shutting down a conversation or like changing the degree of the conversation. Walls all of a sudden go up. It's like, oh, you're one of those, right? I usually don't lead with that, right? Um, it has a tendency, it depends on the, the circumstances, but it has a tendency to shut things down. Why? Because in the presence of people that we perceive to be good or better than us, our shame takes over. So you can imagine then that when an angel, a messenger from God's throne room, a symbol of God's holiness, comes upon these ordinary sinful men, that they are absolutely scared out of their wits, right? Uh, their fear is one of, uh, is one of shame, of disgrace. Uh, we know how sinful we are when we are in the presence of the holy. And so it's a beautiful thing that the angel's message is not one of fear. He does not say, be very afraid. He says, don't be afraid. Which is also the third time we've heard that. Each time an angel has appeared in Luke, he immediately, A, the human is afraid. And B, the angel says, don't be afraid. 
right? Fear not. Why? Because I bring you good news. Literally, I evangelize you. I bring you good news. Good news of great joy for all the people. Now, uh, we typically hear that as all the people in the world. But right at this particular moment, they would have heard it as all the people of Israel. That's who the message comes to first. Now, it's not that Jesus isn't for the world, but that's just where we are right now. So the angel says, don't be afraid, but rejoice. Because your Savior has been born in David's city. Today, your Savior is born. He says, one who is Christ the Lord. And we've talked about this before. Christ is not Jesus' last name. It is his title. The word Christ is the Greek, uh, the Greek version of the Hebrew word Messiah. And it means anointed. And the Jews were looking for the Messiah, the anointed one who would bring God's kingdom, who would bring hope and bring peace. And so what the angel is saying is the one that all the people have been waiting for. He's here today. He's over in Bethlehem. He's been born. Go see him. Actually, the angel doesn't say that. They do that on their own. Right. And then he tells them what to look for in verse 12. Verse 11, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. Here's what you're looking for. You'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths. Now that really isn't much of a helpful description because babies get swaddled. If you've ever had a baby, uh, at least in the past decade, I think, I think there's one company that makes swaddling blankets for hospitals, right? Because I've had, a, I've had three kids in two states in two different hospitals and the blanket and the hat are the same every time, right? We swaddle babies. That's what we do. All right. Babies like that. Parents like that. It's great. Okay. So you'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths. Got it. And lying in a feed trough. Now I have to imagine that at least one of the shepherds said, what did he just say? I think he said feed trough. Feed trough? Why's that baby in a feed trough? Right? We need to hear that with some shock. Uh, they just, the, the angel just said, your Savior, who is the Messiah and Lord, is in a feed trough. That's the second time the feed trough has been mentioned. That the humility of Jesus has been mentioned. And so they go. They don't have to, uh, actually before they go, they, they don't really have long to ponder that sign. Because suddenly with the angel there is a whole vast heavenly army that appears, right? That hilltop gets crowded real quick. And this heavenly army sings this song. Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace. Peace. What kind of peace are we talking about? Uh, in this day, uh, in fact, largely due to the efforts of Caesar Augustus, you had what was called the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. And it was a peace of Rome, it was the peace of Rome guaranteed by the military might of Rome. Rome was a peaceful place, 
because Rome had a big, well-trained army. So it was peace secured by a government. That was the peace of Rome. And it was not a peace of Rome that many appreciated, especially not uh, the people of Judea. They did not like Roman peace. They did not like being under the Roman thumb. And Roman peace would crumble over the next few centuries. And that reminds us that even the peace and prosperity that are afforded by the best governments in the world is only temporary. That the peace of Rome or the peace of the United States secured by military might is only temporary. It is fading and it will crumble. In fact, if you go all the way back to the Old Testament to a young man named Daniel, he sees a vision of a grand statue made up of all of these military empires. And then a stone is thrown from heaven and it smashes the statue at its feet and all of them collapse and the stone grows into a mountain, right? A mountain that fills the whole earth. Even the peace and prosperity afforded by the best governments is only temporary. It cannot last. So here we have an army, but it sings of a different kind of peace. It sings of a peace that flows from God's glory. As God is glorified, it brings peace to those with whom God is pleased. Those on whom God's favor rests. Notice that it is not a worldwide peace. It is not a peace for every person. It is a peace for every person on whom God's favor rests. On those with whom God is pleased. Which begs the question, with whom is God pleased? Who can please God? And the answer that the Bible gives us is that those who trust in the baby in the feed trough, that is where God's favor rests. That is where we find peace. Then to our last turn, from Caesar to Savior. The shepherds don't delay. They head straight to town to look for the child. And as soon as they find him, again, for the third time, now laying in the feed trough, they immediately start telling what they've heard and what they've seen about what they've heard about this child. And it causes everyone there to marvel. To be astonished, to be amazed. And Mary's response to all of this is to store it up. To uh, treasure these moments in her mind, to mull them over. uh, To try to piece together everything that she's experiencing. But there's a great contrast here. A great contrast between the two kings in this passage. Listen to this inscription that was written about Caesar Augustus in 9 BC. Says this, Whereas the providence which has guided our whole existence and which has shown such care and liberality has brought our life to the peak of perfection in giving to us Augustus Caesar. Is that what you expected it to say? 
whom is filled with virtue for the welfare of mankind, and who, being sent to us and to our descendants as a Savior, has put an end to war and has set all things in order. Those were words written about Caesar Augustus, the Roman Empire, the Roman Emperor at the time. Right? The, the people of Rome viewed their kings as saviors. In fact, uh, every day on Caesar's birthday, you were to celebrate with sacrifices. Uh, the Caesar was called a savior. He was a gift to mankind. He brought an end to war. In contrast to the greatness of Caesar, we have this little baby taken from a feed trough eight days later and circumcised and named Jesus. And Matthew tells us that the name Jesus means Savior. The Lord is salvation or the Lord saves. How will he do that? How will he save? We know how Caesar aimed to save, but how will this little one save? Well, I think Luke gives us a clue. You see, Jesus' parents were simply doing what the law, what God's law told them to do. They were presenting their son on the eighth day to be circumcised. And circumcision was a symbol of keeping, uh, a symbol given by God of his promise to Abraham. And so when you perform circumcision, it showed that you trusted in God's promises for his people. Which tells us this, that Jesus is keeping the law before he even knows he's keeping it. Jesus is obeying the law and doing what is right and good before he even knows that he's doing it. But there's a little bit more to circumcision. It was a rite of purification. It was a bloody removal of the flesh that showed you were being cleansed of sin. And it pointed to the circumcision of the heart. That God's people needed to be clean on the inside. Except the problem is, God's people can't ever seem to clean themselves up on the inside. No matter how much is circumcised on the outside, the inside remains a problem. And so God would tell his people in Deuteronomy 30 that he would circumcise their hearts. And the way that he would do that, Paul tells us in Galatians 4. We read it earlier. Tim read it for us earlier. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. See, the reason it's so important that Jesus is born in this way, that he enters the world not in a palace, not in a bassinet, but in a stable's feed trough, is because Jesus has come to walk a difficult road. He has come to walk a downward road. What begins in the feed trough will be finished on the cross. A road that begins in poverty and obscurity will finish in pain and shame. And why? Why does Jesus walk this road even before he knows that he's walking it? 2 Corinthians 8-9 
You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you by His poverty might become rich. Jesus was laid in a food trough so that you might have a place in heaven. He was excluded from the inn so that you would be included in the place that Jesus is preparing for you. Jesus experiences what it means to be cut off, to be circumcised from His people so that you would not be cut off from God. Trust in Jesus. Trust in the baby laid in the food trough. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for this display of mighty humility that You, Lord God, have given us such a symbol of how You work in the world and have given us a a pattern to follow that You have made it so that that we would have the same mindset, that we would follow you in like humility. You have enabled us to do this. Father, now as we come to the table set before us, we pray that you would take common bread and common juice and set it apart for this purpose, this mysterious and spiritual purpose. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me invite our elders to come forward, and as they make their way, I should remind you that uh, the first Sunday of every month we take communion together, and also in response to this, after the service, uh, we we give a donation for mercy needs within our community. Uh, but like I said, what starts in a in a feed trough finishes on a cross. Before Jesus went to that cross, he ate a meal with his disciples. And he told his disciples this, as he uh, passed around the bread to them and gave thanks for it, he said, this bread is my body which is given for you, take and eat. And in the same way, after the supper, Jesus took the cup, and when he had given thanks for that, he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is shed for the forgiveness of the sins of many. Now, this table is not the table of Grace Fellowship. It's not uh, the table of Kevin Corley or any of our elders. It's Jesus' table. Uh, And he invites any who uh, would believe in him, any who trust in Jesus, this table is for you. If you haven't placed your trust in Jesus, we would ask that you just let the elements pass you by. That same letter, 1 Corinthians, warns us that if we... Uh, If we take this meal, if we take the bread and the cup in an unworthy manner, which means if we don't understand what this is all about, then we eat and drink judgment on ourselves, and we don't want to do that. And so, uh, if you're here this morning, and you have believed on the Lord Jesus, uh, then this meal is for you. Enjoy.